Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Stephen Stewart, um, who runs a portfolio of publicly traded exploration companies out of Toronto, including Ore Finders and QC Copper and Gold, and is also the founder and chairman of the Young Mining Professionals and its Scholarship Fund. An avid listener to the podcast, Stephen is going to talk about the exploration and discovery in Canada. Um, and how now is the right time in the cycle. Their model has been to acquire assets and control blocks in companies in a down market and out of distressed situations. Then wait for the time when they can then achieve the appropriate return on investment for discovery. There's a tremendous, there's certainly tremendous opportunities for investors right now, as we sit on the cusp of the macro cycle and its subsequent, subsequent discovery cycle, given the funds now available to the juniors um, in this uh, time of this recording. So let's get straight to this podcast and uh, welcome, uh, welcome Stephen. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing very well, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan and I've been consuming a lot of your content, so I'm, I'm very pleased to, to join you today. Yeah, and I appreciate you giving your time up as well. And actually, uh, uh, actually, obviously, you're an av- like I said, you're an avid listener. You listen to the episode and you thought, yep, yeah, I want to get on there as well. So I appreciate uh, you uh, putting your hand up and um, we, uh, I want to hear more a little bit about yourself. So if you can give the audience a little bit, of, uh, tell the audience a little bit about your background, um, your journey from way back, maybe when you graduated um, and maybe tell a little bit, uh, tell the audience something that they may not know about you. Sure. So my background is uh, largely in finance. I graduated from the University of Western Ontario, uh, just outside of Toronto. I got a Bachelor of Arts and I was probably lost for many years, didn't really know what I was going to do with my degree in in political science and history. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I got into finance. I took my MBA at the University of Toronto. And I would say that opened my mind and my eyes into what money is and how it's priced. I uh, still didn't know anything, okay, even after I graduated from my MBA, but it just sort of opened the door. And then um, I went to work, got in the, in the mining industry. I, uh, my father was involved in the mining industry, and, and Toronto really is a global hub for mining finance, and so there is this really deep talent pool, and, and I just got exposed to it from, from an early age and, and learned through osmosis and got some experience there. And then uh, when the, 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 the financial crisis hit in 07, 08, I went back to school again because there was no work. And uh, I, uh, I guess I upgraded my understanding of, of finance and I took a finance a second finance master's, which was really about asset valuation, particularly on the real estate side. And so, you know, real estate was one of my first loves as well. And I've really, you know, taking that degree took my understanding of money, risk, and quantifying it to, a, to another level. Now, when I came out of school there at the University of Florida, I still didn't know anything, okay? But it gave me the tools. And then from there, it's been, you know, the school of hard knocks going through, you know, some cycles and, and just consuming content and content like the podcast. So I, I listen to people like yourself and the guests that you have, 
but I, but also before that, before I got into the podcast, all about books and, and I've just been such an avid reader and trying to absorb the experiences of other people uh, as much as I possibly can, whether it's Peter Monk or, or, or all these fantastic books that are out there. And so I guess, you know, in terms of to, to finish off my, my uh, introduction, things that people don't know about me, I guess to say I'm a bookworm. You know, I, I just I just absolutely love to read and and hopefully one day I make enough money in this business I can build a library. You know, that's my <laughs> And it's funny, every time we do these sort of Zoom interviews or even Zoom calls, there's always pictures of books in the background. Unfortunately, um, although from the podcast you won't be able to see this, I haven't got any books in the background, although I do read books and I do listen to a lot of audio books. Um so um, hopefully I will have a bookcase there in the future. Yeah, my bookcase is just over to my right here. I won't try and fiddle with my camera, but I assure no. you, I've got, I've got my collection in my office. Yeah, no worries. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little about, about the companies uh, you're involved in, um, like uh, All Finders and QC Copper and Gold and a few of the other companies that you're involved in? If you can just give us sure. an overview of each of those uh, companies. Sure, we've got it. We've got a group here. It's called the Org Group, which is really our parent company, not too dissimilar to other guests you've had. Uh, I just listened the other day to Marco Day and his Ox Oxygen Capital, similar model to what guys like that are doing. But obviously, Mark is, is a, I won't say a class by his own, but certainly a very, very successful guy. And and we we're not reinventing the wheels here. We're doing our own thing. We're not doing exactly like other people does. But that's what the Org Group effectively is. It's a, a project generator, a company generator, a, an opportunity generator for the people in our group and for the, our shareholders that are involved with us at the private and, and obviously at the going public stage. Um, we've, got, uh, we've got four public companies in our portfolio right now uh, and a fifth soon to be IPO. We're just working through our listing process. Uh, you mentioned Ore Finders. That was uh, probably the uh, most uh, seasoned publicly traded company been around since 2013 it's focused in the kirkland lake area of northern ontario um in and around of course kirkland lake gold and agnico eagle uh, we've got uh, another gold company which is very similar to ore finders called mistango river resources uh, we acquired that interest in that company and control ultimately the board vis-a-vis -a, -vis a proxy battle you mentioned distress situations it was you know i guess a unique um, distress, management distress situation where we fought very hard on behalf of shareholders to remove a board that I felt wasn't performing on, on behalf of shareholders. And so that became part of our portfolio and it's quite synergistic to ore finders and give us a, a really good position in, in one of the best camps in the world, Kirkland Lake. And then we've got another company called, uh, you mentioned it, QC Copper and Gold, which today actually just officially changed its name. And and trading symbol uh, QCCU on the on the Toronto Venture Exchange. It was called Power Ore for two years. Uh, it's got a beautiful copper gold deposit in in the Shibugamu district of Quebec. It's an old Falconbridge mine where it had very high grade production, which we've reinterpreted into a, a disseminated open pit type deposit, not too dissimilar to what's happened at Cote Lake with Iron Gold, or even more famous Malarctic with the, the guys at Osisco did. Same same model. Uh, copper, gold in Quebec, and so that's QC Copper. And then we've got a uh, uranium company. I'm a big believer in uranium um, and the fundamentals of it. Uh, it's a company called Baseload Energy. It's traded on the venture. It's led. The CEO is a gentleman by the name of James Sykes. James is a brilliant young geologist with huge potential. I'm just fortunate to hitch my wagon to him and back him to go out there and find us some high-grade uranium in the Athabasca 
And the last last opportunity we have in our portfolio, it's probably going to be listed in Q4, the end of this year, is called uh, American Eagle Gold. And that's very much a part of our group. It's led by a guy by the name of Ron Stewart. No relation to me, but Ron's, Ron's a friend. We've been working with Ron for a while. He's a, a very seasoned geologist. In fact, he was VPX at Kinross for many years and, a, and also an investment banker. So he brings the capital markets, uh, the geology, and that, that's focused in Nevada, which is a jurisdiction that we don't yet, aside from that, haven't had experience in the past. But there, there's really no better place to be than, you know, than Ontario, Quebec, and Nevada, and, and, and that's where we're at. So that's, yeah. that's our portfolio, and that's our group. Yeah, good to hear. Um, how do you see the macroeconomy uh, impacting the commodity sector? Um, and I suppose more specifically around the gold market, because obviously you're in gold and gold seems to be doing pretty well at the moment. Um, and in the industrial commodities versus the exotics. Um, I wonder if you can uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, that's how we really play this whole industry is we take a view on the macro economy and how that is going to impact uh, particular commodities. Now, uh, many years ago, we took a view on gold, which is not, you know, our uh, proprietary view. It's a, it's a, call it a gold bug view for lack of a, you know, better term, but we have concerns about the printing of money. And I don't want to get into that. That horse is, yeah. you know, well, well beaten, but you know, I think it's true. And I think it's been exacerbated particularly by what's going on with COVID. And it's, it's awfully concerning to me how, you know, the economy, everything seems to be okay at the, the market level. You look at the S&P, but then you look at, you know, the real economy on Main Street and they're suffering. And I think there's a major disconnect. And I think that the only way, you know, they can prop it up for a while, but they can only do so for so long. And they've done so with, you know, what I call is artificial money. And so, you know, if they, were, if they didn't have this stimulus, and it's no commentary, perhaps that was the best solution given the circumstances. But what they've done, the policy response is going to be significant. I'm not sure how they're going to be able to turn off the caps. And if they do, then I think, you know, we're at risk for, you know, I don't want to say collapse, I don't want to get doom and gloom, but it's concerning. And I think that, you know, has major consequences for gold. And I think that there is, you know, I would say that the odds are less than 50-50, but it's on the table that there's a total financial reset a la Bretton Woods or something to that effect. Now, you know, I hope that that doesn't happen. I hope they find a way. I really do, despite how good that would be for gold, because I think that could spell social issues. And that, that really concerns me is the social divide greater than making money for, you know, any, any one company. I think that has more profound consequences. But nonetheless, I don't control these things. I only craft investment theses based on what we see and uh, we don't know anything but we play the odds and so I think it's I cannot see a scenario where this doesn't play out very well for gold over the medium to long term is there the possibility that gold goes down a hundred three hundred five hundred dollars tomorrow sure I mean I don't have a crystal ball I don't know where gold price is going but I think that would be somewhat temporary mm. and then I think the, the narrative for gold is extremely strong and and so that's, you know, that's the secrets out, you know, the cab driver or your Uber, Uber driver is telling you to buy gold. So, you know, it's not a bad investment thesis, although, you know, try not to get it too ahead of ourselves on where it goes. Like as we see gold hit 2000, it's selling off, everybody's panicking, no big deal. Gold's coming back. It's not, you know, it's not going anywhere. Now, where I think the better value is right now, and it's, it requires potentially some patience, is industrial commodities, copper. 
okay? Copper, nickel, that sort of stuff, uranium. I think, let's talk about copper. Obviously, I'm talking my book, but you know, we're big believers in copper. It's not a coincidence we're in the copper business. We had this thesis. I think there's some severe supply and demand fundamental issues with copper, which I won't get into, but they're there and they haven't gone away, but it has been masked by the trade war between Trump and Xi, and that sort of kept copper back. And then, of course, we had COVID and copper dropped below two bucks. But if you look at the price of metal in copper, it's gone from two bucks in March up to three bucks and, and north of that now. And so companies like Freeport are making money. And so they're, they're up, okay, the cash flowing guys. But what hasn't happened is the juniors, such as QC Copper and Gold and all the other junior exploration companies who don't get the benefit of that from one to the bottom line, they have lagged and it's been flat. Same thing happened to gold, okay? So when gold started to run in, in the summer of 2019, um, Barrick ran, but, you know, ore finders flat, nobody cared. But then come March and April of this year, up three, four, five, six, seven times, okay? I think that same setup is coming to copper. So uh, if you want my opinion, I think there is better value in copper right now than virtually any other situation. You could make an argument for uranium, but it has different, you know, more complex um, parameters. So that's where I'm putting my money in copper, uh, particularly copper in safe places, you know, like Australia, United States, uh, Canada, we stay away. I was just reading, you know, of course, I think one of the sexiest copper assets in the world is Mr. Friedland's and, and the DRC. Wow. 8% copper, you know, is, is, you know, I think 5% is a cutoff grade. It's mind blowing, really. Problem is you're in the DRC. And uh, I think there was just some, I just saw a headline. I don't know much about it, but I saw there's a coup there, you know, it's, there's some sort of, you know, attack and, you know, that is why, you know, we stay very close to home and to jurisdictions that we like and trust. There's elephants in Africa, but, you know, you don't really know if you own them. And you do until you don't. Yeah, yeah. With all this, and obviously from what you've been saying, how, and especially with the, the whole monetary and financial system, which I don't want to go down that angle, but how is that going to impact the sort of junior and exploration space? Because I take it, and especially with like with, pension funds i think there's going to be a lot of money slowly pouring into the resources industry how is that going to help junior miners and exploration um, companies moving forward well it has you're absolutely right the money has i don't want to say poured in but it will ac access to capital is has changed dramatically over the last nine to six months and even more so the last six months so much so that i already see the beginning of the end so to speak whereas potentially the wrong projects being financed. However, the right projects are being financed and, more, and, and even more so, most importantly, the right people, um, which is the most single most important thing in this industry because the wrong people can, can screw up a, a good asset, okay? And, and the good and the right people can kill a project, a bad project quickly and move on to the next. So it's, it's really all about people. But to answer your question, capital is now available to us for the past six, seven years, there was a dearth of capital. There was just nothing there. And that wasn't just exclusive to the juniors. That was that was true for the the majors as well, who cut exploration budgets, um, and, and and the juniors just didn't have it. In fact, so much so we didn't we refused to drill because we weren't getting the return on investment required. So why would we do that? So now the money's here. There is, I think, pent up demand for exploration, certainly from a discovery. So I think we're at, you know, I don't know where we are in terms of the cycle. What inning? I hear a lot of you know people giving their opinions, but I think we're just at the beginning of. Of, of this of a discovery cycle here and so we get this money coming in uh, we've we've raised uh, probably close to 15 maybe more than that million dollars in the last six months 
and we're putting it into the ground. Okay. That's, that's where it's going. That's where investors want. It's all about discovery from my perspective and everybody has different business models, but we want to make a discovery. We think that's the best way for our shareholders to get paid is that if we you know, set the position up like we did the past four or five years by acquiring these land packages in good jurisdictions and good real estate and setting it up so that we can make a, a real high quality discovery in a great market. So that's where I think, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of discoveries again. I think that is going to snowball in its interest. Uh, when Voises Bay was, was discovered, when Hemlo was discovered, that created near euphoria uh, in, from an investment standpoint. So we're, start, we, we're seeing this money come in where it's been on the sidelines. Now we're popular again. But once we start hitting those discoveries, I, I think, oh boy, it's going to take off. Yeah. And so where, where are you guys putting your money? Um, are you focused on any particular commodity? Um, and what are you sort of looking for? I suppose if you're investing in any small cap companies, um, what are some of the most important cr criteria to you? So the most important thing, you know, I, I won't invest in any company unless I, I know or understand those people. There's a, there's a lot of good quality people to invest in. So that's the first thing I look at. And then I look at the asset, the quality of the asset, their their explore their strategy i mean where are they cognizant of the cycle like i was describing i mean i wouldn't have wanted to be an investor in a, in a gold company drilling their brains out four years ago because you know unless you made that game-changing discovery it's just really destruction of capital so how these people allocate capital and where are important and the where uh is very important as i said i like ontario i like canada but canada is a big place and so there are some places that are better uh, Quebec has to be one of the best jurisdictions in the world. Ontario, uh, close second. Um, Nevada, as I said, so I like the U.S. I'd love to go to Australia, though. The, the logistical challenges of going there are quite difficult. So we stay away from the jurisdictions that we can't control or don't have firsthand knowledge of the laws. We don't speak the language, that sort of thing. Um, in terms of commodities, so yeah, I've already sort of gone over my, my preferences. is gold, silver, copper, nickel. Um, and uranium. I'm a big believer in uranium. I stay away from the exotics, if you will. I try and stay away from materials or commodities that aren't traded on the spot market. I find that uh, those things, and uranium would be a sort of an exception there, but um, they're too easily manipulated by countries, shall we say, that you know control them. And so you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars bringing your deposit, your discovery, uh, up to the production stays only to have that commodity totally flooded by, you know, he or she who controls that market and, and just to kill your project. So we, we like spot markets. We, we, we stay away from exotics, basically yeah. the stuff that goes into the economy on a regular basis and the flavors, the, the flavor du jour, so to speak. Um, that's a game we try not to play. Yeah. Obviously you mentioned quite a few commodities there. Something that interests me as well, obviously apart from gold, silver, et cetera, um, is uranium. Um, and I don't know too much about uranium, although I think it's a little bit early in the life cycle for uranium. I, and from again, from listening to various, various commentators, um, there seems to be, um, I suppose, a little bit of a holding pattern in uranium because they are waiting for that price to slowly gradually go up because they're losing money if they start producing now. What's your take if you're probably looking at uranium in a little bit more detail, what sort of what sort of advice or knowledge do you know about uh, around uranium? Well, I, th I think your attitude on uranium is exactly right. It's it's a question of timing, just like anything. Yeah. Gold, I mean, every commodity is all about timing. You know, 
I'm not lucky enough to make a world-class discovery necessarily, right? That's not my, that's not how I approach something. I hope to do that and we position ourselves, but really it's so important to play the cycle. And I do think it's early in the uranium cycle. Mm -hmm. And when we put together baseload and we, we were thinking about it for a long time and we were prepared to be flat, if not down for years. Okay. And so when we put it all together, it was before COVID and I obviously couldn't have foreseen COVID, but if, if I was told about COVID, I would have never thought it was the catalyst to bring it from, call it $20 to $30. Uh, but it, it did, and it brought interest to the sector where it was dead and just really only the diehards left, and even they were you know, fading fast. And so uh, it brought life. I think you know, without getting too deep into the mechanics of, of, of uranium, because it is ultra complex, what needs to happen, you're, you hit the nail on the head there, is that these guys, the, the big guys, the low-cost producers aren't really making money at this price. Call it a low $30 spot price, even though it's really, you know, there's, there's two prices in, in uranium. But uh, so we're not, certainly not even at the incentive price, let alone the break-even price. So I don't think we're there yet. However, what can happen, what I have seen, is that when uranium moves, it moves fast and it moves hard. Uh, supply is severely constrained, which we saw when COVID hit. I think, you know, 60, I heard different numbers, but let's just say 50 to 60% of supply came off like that. Mm. Okay. Whereas if you're in the mining, the gold mining business, there's, you know, hundreds of miners and, you know, supply could be easier balanced. So uh, the, the supply aspect of uranium is at risk. Demand has never been higher. Um, people talk about Fukushima, which happened 10 years ago. Um, and they talk about a disaster and it certainly was, you know, I, I think, you know, one person died to put that in context, whereas, you know, the effluent from coal and gas kills thousands and thousands of people every year. So there's this false narrative about uranium, but that doesn't necessarily impact the price, but it does impact the policy. I think that we're going to continue to see more favorable policy. I think both in the United States, you see the Democrats and the Republicans tending to come around the corner on uranium. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the, the Section 232, which was, uh, you know, about policy by the, the Trump government and certainly the, even the Canadian government, who is viewed as very, um, uh, call it social, socially liberal across the board, has come out there. The, the, the Minister of Mines came out and said, there's, there's really no other solution than uranium. OK, and so that's the that's the thesis. So, yeah. you know, we're going in the direction of uranium. It's either the equation is very simple. Fossil fuels, coal, gas, natural gas or uranium. I mean. They talk about renewables. It's nice, you know, but it doesn't, you know, you want to run a factory on that? Forget about it, let alone a city. It's impossible. So you need uranium. That's the math. It's clean. There are trade-offs, just like anything. If you're going to dig a hole in the ground, um, you're going to have a, a consequence of that, but they're manageable. And so I, I think the narrative is slowly going to swing back towards building um, uh, nuclear facilities in Western worlds. And, uh, and then, but you know, that's a longer term proposition. The near term, the utilities are going to be forced to sign uh, long term contracts and Cameco is not going to sign it at 30 bucks. You know, they're going to, they're going to look to sign it at 50, 60, $70. And then once you see that it's human psychology, just like any market commodities, there's no exception is you're going to have fear of missing out and just, you know, securing the supply. And that's, what's going to make it really violent. And that's, that's what we saw, you know, back, uh, you know, 13 years ago in that cycle. I think the same sort of thing happens again. I hope it doesn't go so violently because if it were to go to from 20 to 140, it, that's unsustainable, right? That's the left-hand side of a parabola. Uh, we're, we're inevitably going to see the right-hand side. So I, like all commodities, like to see sustained growth, nothing too violent. But I, I suspect we will see a real uh, aggressive shift to the upside in uranium. When? I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. 
Um, what are some of the challenges facing the industry at the moment? And I suppose if we have a look over the next 12 to 18 months, um, obviously at the time of recording this, we are still going through this um, COVID crisis um, here in the UK. We are, we're just going into our sort of second lockdown. Um, don't know what you guys in Canada are doing, whether you're, you're at your first, going into your second. But I see this playing out for, for quite a while. What, how, how, would you, how do you see the um, industry facing? What sort of challenges do you see them facing with this in and out of lockdown um, on, on the industry? Well, I think certainly COVID in the short term is, is something that everybody is taking seriously. Um, I, I do view it as a shorter term issue. I, I think we will get out of this, although it doesn't feel like it as, you know, we're all sort of cooped up in our, in our various places. Um, it's not a, a, a medium to long-term problem that's really going to be overbearing on the market. Okay. I think the policy that falls out of it from the governments is going to have an impact, a positive impact, but from an operation standpoint, we got to do, we know how to manage it. Okay. Within reason, of course. Um, I think the, the larger challenges that are call it the extractives industry faces is really about misinformation and image. Uh, we, we are viewed as the bad guy, the, the, the nasty guys, who are often painted as people who pollute the industry. And maybe that was the case 100 years ago, but we've come a long way. I mean, we're, in fact, probably one of the most ESG-conscious industries around in terms of promoting um, all sorts of people of all shapes and colors and, and et cetera, orientations, whatever, um, and as well as giving back to communities. Uh, unfortunately, that is just not the, the popular or shall I say the common narrative. So we are still just viewed inherently as these evil people. That's not the case. Uh, we build schools, roads, communities, all these people who are anti-mining without really understanding the facts, you know, are doing so on their, you know, tweeting on their iPhone, which has uh, all these uh, elements and that they're, you know, they hate. So the fact is we are a critical, essential part of the supply chain. Without us, uh, that is the mining industry. You just simply cannot live your quality of life. You know, you'll, you will be cold and dark and living in, you know, um, a cave. And so, you know, it, if you want to enjoy all these things that we've enjoyed, and I, and I think, you know, we enjoy it, the standard of living has never been higher. The, the, if you want to be realistic about it, the equality level has never been higher than it is now. There's, there's faults and improvements we can make, you know, all over the place. But mining is a major contributor to um, local communities. If you drive seven hours north, you know, of Toronto and you get, you know, the Cadillac fault, there's two major fault systems up there. You drive east to west, there's head frame, head frame, head frame, and you see prosperity. Okay, but that's because of the mines and these local communities have benefited. They've got nice trucks, snowmobiles, schools, hospitals, paved roads. There would be nothing up there if it wasn't for the mining over the past 100, 150 years, which have paid for that. And so that's, you know, that's the message I want to deliver and is sort of get over, get mining over that hump. I think the industry needs to do a better job in promoting itself and just explaining the supply chain. Uh, but also the benefit to the economy. In specific here in Ontario, where, where Toronto is located, our manufacturing sector has been absolutely decimated. We've relied on it for decades and decades, but it's gone offshore. I think the solution lies right under our feet, you know, with the minerals we have here, but we face permitting challenges, which is really rooted in the narrative, the negative narrative what we have. But if we could just change that narrative, I think we could uh, see a world of difference in, in our, our uh, local and, and broader 
uh, economies. So that's the biggest challenge. And then, and then another challenge I'll mention is our young people. And I think this is all as a derivative of that, I think, and this ties into my involvement with the young mining professionals, is that we have been, again, we being the mining industry has been unpopular. And so, and also in a down cycle. So uh, it's not been exciting for people to get involved in. If you're an engineer or you want to signing up for your courses, not many people choose geology. One, because you know, there's a negative perception, but also because uh, there haven't been jobs. However, that has changed, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's hard to find, it's harder and harder to find people. As we ramp up our operations, we're, the, the pickings are becoming slimmer and slimmer, and that will you know, impact costs, et cetera. However, we have this huge lag. Uh, so I think the, you know, the University of Toronto's engineering, middle engineering school had six people graduate this year, six people. So you, we won't really see that for the years ahead, but there's just not that next generation coming. And there's very, even my generation here in Toronto, there's very few people of my era. I'm, you know, just 41, 42 years old, just turned the other day. There's very few people of my era who do what I do. Um, there's more in Vancouver and more probably all over the world, but it's, there's a generation gap that's, that's only gotten worse. So I think, uh, again, through education um, of the general populace, I think that is something that would benefit the industry better. And I think the industry needs to look internally and our organizations and associations really need to, 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 to get a hold of that and, and make a difference. Yeah. Obviously, as an avid listener to this podcast and obviously listen to quite a few episodes, um, I've talked often and tried to discuss obviously with the guests about the image of mining and the lack of, and the, I suppose the perception of the public and the world, what they believe mining is. And it's, and the thing is, I think it needs to, for the industry to, to, I suppose, advance itself, the actual image of mining needs to be addressed to everyone. Whether that's learned in schools at a young age, um, and again, it doesn't have to be a subject around mining. It's just the younger people need to understand what mining is and what mining contributes to society and to the world, because a lot of people don't realise that every object it has come from a mine, and I don't think people actually even know that. Um, but once they get to start, once they understand that, then they know how important mining can be. You're always going to get people that are going to be against mining, but a lot of those people, um, again, are uneducated around the mining industry. So I think it starts in the schools. Um, And for instance, you mentioned about the skills gap. Obviously I work in recruitment. I do see that as well. So again, for people that are graduating up to say your age, you just know there's a lack of skills generally speaking across the world for for that age group if you're looking at geologists especially like mine engineers for instance um there is a lack of mine engineers worldwide for the demand uh, what is needed for the industry so um again i think it all comes back down to education in the schools getting people interested in the mining industry showing the benefits of what mining does for for the society um getting their interest and i think then you would see a flow of people be more accepted to studying for instance a mine engineering degree or geology and i notice and i know around the whole world that a lot of the universities their numbers have gone way down um and only just recently for instance the campbell school of mines there was a report just released um 
last week, I think it was, that they're looking to close down one of their one of their courses. I can't remember if it's the, the geology course, but I, mean, mine to... I think mine engineering. I saw that. I think maybe yeah, yeah. There's two schools out in the, in the UK made sort of those, those types of announcements. Yeah. And, and even right. in Australia as well. And I think in Australia, they, they've announced that they're um, taking out one of the courses. So there's a reason, re there's reason behind why these universities have decided to cut these, these courses for whatever reason when it actually is needed. If, you, if you're in the mining industry, you know that that course is needed. And for some reason, the universities are not seeing that. And I think, again, it comes down to education and making aware of the whole image of mining. No, you're right. It's, it's supply and demand, right? Schools are businesses, mm. uh, despite, you know, you know, maybe the thought mm -hmm. to the contrary. So there's just not enough demand. Just like I said, U of T, six people. So they yeah. can't sustain it. Um, you know, which, you know, leads me back to, to YMP and a group that we started there, which is really about, you know, um, educating and incenting young people to get involved, develop their network, um, meeting each other. We've got a scholarship fund here in Canada. We've given away $70,000 this year directly to students. So that's something that it was very near and dear to my heart and is really all about, you know, the grassroots, getting to the grassroots level. And, and, and you know, we give them $10,000 a year. Will that, you know, incense them to study mining? And, um, you know, Another project we have within that group, the YMP, which is now a global group. We've got a chapter in the UK, Australia, South Africa, Chile. We even got a potentially one in Asia, in China working. But it's, um, it's, uh, it's, its next project in my mind is really to go to the, you know, the organizations such as the PDAC or the CIM or even do our own thing and start with grassroots education. Uh, start there. Uh, change the, the narrative and uh, I think great things will happen for the industry. Yeah, certainly. Um, what with obviously the influx of capital uh, coming into the industry and slowly coming in, how, how's that affected your particular operations? Well, it's been great. Um, you know, we've been preparing ourselves for years for today, so to speak. And today is that we get the ability to raise money at an acceptable cost of capital, meaning our share prices is palatable to our existing shareholders. And more importantly, we can deploy that capital intelligently and we can do so when, if we meet or even exceed, we hope our expectations, our shareholders are paid in the form of higher share prices, a return on investments, uh, et cetera. And so that's the investment proposition that we're able to deliver today. Of course, it's always results pending. Um, so that narrative, that investment thesis is, is live and that's attractive to people. And so that's attracted the capital. And it's given us the ability to go uh, execute on our plans. We've been very vocal about our plans, but we've also been very forthright about we're not going to execute those plans until certain conditions are met. Uh, in December of last year, we saw those conditions. We came out with a news release saying, hey, the thing has shifted. We're not going to ignore acquisitions. However, we see that that opportunity being less and less as their price has gone up. And now, as, it did, as we talked about right off the top, you know, the money's going into the ground to discover, not just discover, but also expand existing resources so that we can delineate something that's economic so we can, we can mine the thing and make, uh, you know, generate the cash flow. So it's been a very interesting time. It's been very busy. We're seeing um, all sorts of interest come. Uh, you know, the past four or five years, I was uh, on the phone, um, standing in offices, doing whatever I can, trying to get attention. Now it's the opposite. So, you know, and, and people like yourself are assisting it's it's people are coming to us and so yeah. we've really seen you know an anecdotal change in in how 
uh, we finance ourselves. But in more than anecdotal, we see you know empirical evidence by you know the amount of money that's been raised, which has been substantial. And and again, I think uh, if they put it into the ground responsibly, we're going to see uh, a whole bunch of discoveries. And that's going to it's going to snowball from there. And then there's going to be more money, and then the cycle will collapse. Okay. Yeah just like it always does. But I do think that uh, commodity prices have a lot to, to do with that. So a strong gold market can prop up a, a sort of a poorly executed exploration plan for a while. Uh, but, you know, investors shouldn't kid themselves. This is a cyclical market. We're now on the front end of a positive one, but eventually uh, the same mistakes of, uh, of yesterday will be repeated. Um, uh, so investors should be aware of that. Yeah. And how have you played the uh, cycles across the various commodities? I, um, I try to be cognizant of them. I have certain, um, you know, I guess, anecdotal and Indian, as I said, in empirical metrics that I pay attention to in terms of where gold prices or other commodity prices would give me indicators. Uh, again, they, you know, they take a lot longer to actually become reality into what I anticipate. So you always have to build in an extra level of patience. Um, but I play, uh, you know, I play what I know, okay? And so I, 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 do, I do own some producers in my, you know, little personal portfolio, but I largely invest in my contemporary, first and foremost in my business. I'm, I'm a significant shareholder in anything I do because that's the only way I'm really going to make money in this industry is becoming an owner, a shareholder. Um, but I also invest in other people's business who I know and I trust and there's there's a handful of them and and right now I think that's you know a great way to get torque to commodities so you know you invest in gold 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 goes up 10% well a quality junior you know should go up 30 40% if it makes a discovery you know you know multiples and the same narrative holds true for for copper and, and uranium again just talking my book but that that's it I, my book is where I think um, the torque is going to be, and I think copper is a great place to be. So I love the juniors right now who have not benefited, right? So if you're looking for, everybody looks at the gold juniors right now, and they say they've gone up, you know, one, two, three, four, five times. They don't want to. They don't want to chase it, right? Um, look at the copper guys. Okay, they haven't run yet. And when I say the copper guys, I mean the copper juniors. They just haven't run to the same degree. So if you believe in the in the copper thesis and look at the metal, it's up fifty percent. Okay. There's, there's a lag in these things. Clearly, it's not rocket science. It's, you know. So my money's going in copper and, and uranium right now and my contemporaries, aside from the stuff that I do. Yeah. And um, what sort of jurisdictions do you like and why? Obviously, you've, you're, you're looking at, obviously, Canada um, and Nevada. Is there any other jurisdictions, areas, countries that you'll look at? I'll look at anything, but I'll... I'll quickly pass over it if I'm not very familiar with it. If I don't have, you know, a trusted partner in that particular location, I would consider myself to be the trusted partner in Canada uh, or even Nevada, but, but not so much Nevada. I'm, I'm, I'm green in Nevada, but I have trusted partners, guys like Ron Stewart and, and other guys involved with uh, American uh, Eagle Gold who, who know those areas. So it's, it's absolutely critical that you have um, – people with skin in the game who know those jurisdictions. Otherwise I don't play. So it's, it's really, you know, my area is, is my country, which is Canada. And that's where I focus unless there's a, a partner uh, involved. Yeah. And uh, concluding what are you looking to do and sort of focus on um, over, I suppose, coming months to the end of the year and 2021 and beyond. So, you know, for the balance of this year, we're in the process of closing on a few financings. In fact, three financings this year, that's how busy uh, this week, that's how busy we are, which is fantastic. So that cashes us up. And then, you know, and, you know, 
in the background of that, it's all about deploying that capital intelligently. So it's, it's, it's drill programs. So we have been uh, very busy, you know, months ago, we beefed up our, our technical team, our boots on the ground. So that's been, you know, logistical challenges that we've overcome, not overcome, but had to, to sort of address and uh, put the money in the ground. I mean, that, that's where, that's where we're focused. I think we're, we're, we've already started drilling a couple of weeks ago. I anticipate and hope to have the drills spinning on various projects, but you know, within our portfolio, you know, for the, the next nine, 12 months nonstop. So it's uh, you know, just continuous chance for discovery. And that's, that's why we're in this business. So it's really, you know, um, making sure the companies are cashed up what they are deployment of capital um, as we had described to shareholders. And then of course um, talking, about our businesses, promoting our business, making people aware because there are, you know, a thousand, two thousand juniors. I, I don't know how many there are. I don't count them, but there's a lot. So you need to stand out and you have to market your business. And so that's uh, as a CEO or, or a leader of, of various businesses, that's, that's an important role that I take. And, and now that there's an audience, you know, we've got lots to talk about. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you read a lot of books. Is there any books that you can recommend and any reason why you would recommend? I um, you know, one of my favorite books, and most people in the industry have read it. It's called The Big Score, Robert Friedland's book. It's classic. Um, it's a must read for anybody involved in the business. There's a great book called Twiggy about Andrew Forrest, a big, you know, the Fortescue Australian yeah. billionaire, very interesting guy. Uh, one of my personal industry heroes is Peter Monk. There's a book called uh, The Golden Phoenix. Um, Peter Monk is so much more than Barrick, though. That's, he's, he's certainly synonymous with it, but he was a, a true entrepreneur, failed and succeeded and brushed himself off and, and succeeded again and then gave, gave a ton of money away. Um, so those are three books just off the top of my head, aside from two technical stuff. Uh, but those, you know, I love to read about the actual entrepreneur, learn from you know, their trial and error. I learned from their dedication and, and persistence, which is, you know, you absolutely need that and thick skin in this business. So those, those are three good books. Yeah. I think they're going to be next on my uh, reading list. So uh, yeah, appreciate, appreciate the uh, recommendation. Um, really appreciate your time, Stephen. Um, if our audience wants to reach out to you, um, how can they go about doing that? And are you on social media at all? Yeah, I'm on social media. My, I, I think my name is uh, S Stewart or, or Stephen, Steve Stewart. Or O-R-E, uh, with the at, of, of course, uh, in front of it. And my, my, the best email people can reach me at is sstewart at orfinders.ca. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at getting back to shareholders, interested parties, and um, always love to network in this business. Yeah, we'll put those all in the show notes accompanying this podcast. Um, also, the um, Young Mining Professionals. Um, how can people find out more about that? Go to youngminingprofessionals.com. Um, and uh, we've got chapters all over the world. I think we have 12. Uh, it's been a phenomenal uh, organization in terms of what it's accomplished. Uh, raised $200,000 for COVID this year, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars for our scholarship. If you want to learn more about the scholarships, go to ympscholarships.com. Uh, we, they're, they're actually being all awarded at the end of this month. So unfortunately, everybody's missed it for this year, but we gave away $70,000. Uh, really okay. impressive, all through uh, corporate par partnership. 100% uh, of every dollar um, given to us by these corporate sponsors was flowed directly to the students. So YMP is a 100% um, volunteer organization, and uh, we're just trying to do good uh, for the industry. It's personally, it's, it's not been entirely altruistic. It's been probably the best thing I've done for my career. 
in terms of getting to mix and mingle with uh, the leaders of the industry who are supporters of the YMP, but also my contemporaries. And that's just expanded my network, which is absolutely critical to the problems that I need to solve on a daily basis. Yeah. And the young mining professionals, is that for graduates that are studying? Are they recent graduates? Is there, or is it for... You have to Any be as well. For, okay, so now for the for the scholarships, obviously they have to be enrolled in in a in a program. Unfortunately, it's just for Canadians, or I should say, okay. Canadian, uh, enrolled at a Canadian institution. You don't have to be Canadian, but you have to be enrolled at a Canadian school, just so we can check, right? I mean, I can't necessarily check uh, easily if somebody's in New Zealand in the school, and it's just too much, you know, work for us. So, okay. um, so that's one thing. But in terms of the group itself, and all sorts of amazing events that which it, I should say, it hosts, but used to host, hasn't hosted in a while, but those are open to anybody. And so we don't, we don't uh, card anybody at the door. So, you know, 60 year olds are welcome, but you know, the demographics really between, you know, 25 to 40, I would say, once you start getting beyond 40, I don't think you can call yourself young. And so that's why I've, I've extricated myself from the group because I hit the big four O and I've handed it over to the next generation who are doing a phenomenal yeah. job. Yeah, no, it's good. And I'll check that out. And especially I, I get a lot of graduates uh, listening to this podcast. So um, please check out, please check out those websites. And um, if you've got any questions, then obviously you can reach out to Stephen. So um, really appreciate your time uh, in doing this podcast. Um, you've certainly given uh, the audience some things to think about, especially uh, with the commodities and looking at uh, the, the cycles and also some books to uh, read up on. So um, really appreciate your time in uh, conducting this podcast. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me and uh, keep up the great work, Rob. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And to the audience, um, hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share this with, amongst your friends um, and make sure we keep promoting this podcast out to the masses. Obviously, we, the, the podcast is coming in about 165 countries, I think, at the moment. Um, some of those countries may only have a, a few listeners. So I want to keep pushing this podcast out. So please keep referring this to all your friends, family, colleagues, people in the industry, um, because it's an edu- it's, it is an educational podcast as well, mainly. Um, and I'm sure from every episode, you're going to learn something. So appreciate if you can uh, keep sharing and liking um, the podcast. So until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.